Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Over the last few months, we've seen anti-racist struggles flourishing across the world. We've also seen institutions attempt to examine their own complicity in white supremacy with varying degrees of success. Today's episode will feature a reading taken from Saturation, Race, Art and the Circulation of Value, which was published in May with the New Museum as part of the MIT Press's Critical Anthologies in Art and Culture series. The writing collected in this book offers analysis and critique for institutions wishing to move beyond tokenism and performative gestures towards genuine change. Saturation was edited by C. Riley Snorton and Hentai Yap, and they have kindly produced a reading for the podcast. C. Riley is Professor of English and Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Chicago, as well as the author of Black on Both Sides, A Radical History of Trans Identity, and Nobody is Supposed to Know, Black Sexuality on the Download. Hentai is Assistant Professor of Art and Public Policy at New York University, where he is also an affiliated faculty member in the departments of Performance Studies and Comparative Literature, as well as the Center of Disability Studies and the Asian Pacific American Institute. I'd like to say thank you again to both of them for producing this book, as well as recording the reading that you're about to hear. Sensuous Contemplation, Thinking Race at its Saturation Points by C. Riley Snorton and Hentai Yap. One could find numerous examples of controversy involving race in the art world in recent years. A Metropolitan Museum's decision to hire a white American woman to curate the African arts collection sparks criticism. A white South African man becomes the subject of international controversy while touring scenes of colonial abuse across Europe. Two artworks about the Arab Spring are removed from an art festival in India. A museum is criticized for not addressing the racial implications of Latin American modernism in a show of work by one of its leading figures. An image of a Black American male artist protesting a white American women's painting at a biennial exhibition becomes an emblem in its own right, circulating in and across news and social media. This list is far from exhaustive and purposefully abstract to avoid rehashing the problems of each instance but it speaks to an ongoing tendency to frame race within the art world in terms of scandal or crisis. As frames, scandal and crisis produce race as fully knowable, while simultaneously and paradoxically precluding a meditation on how race is understood. The pattern of annual controversies surrounding race and representation rotates through predictable debates and formulaic responses. Indeed, This cycle of media coverage and public discourse reconfirms and solidifies how race continues to be understood as a problem of representation and visibility. A set of questions emerges and recurs in meditation. On what grounds was offensive? How does the artist's identity matter? Is censorship warranted here? What about the artist's right to free speech? Why aren't there more people of color at the table to make art and to make decisions about art? The popular logic goes that if only the right representative from a group or a larger plurality of embodied difference were present, then institutions like the museum and the university would be absolved from historic forms of exclusion. However, we know this to not be true, even with the slow and growing presence of people of color. Further, institutions profit from increased representation. Even if they answer calls for more visibility, they do so without a fundamental reordering of protocols or dynamic redistribution of resources. For instance, 
museums attempt to increase diversity by exhibiting work by and hiring those who have been historically excluded. But we must ask what expectations surround these individuals when they enter an institution. In particular, these subjects often are required to perform and interact in legible ways that are institutionally sanctioned and deemed appropriate. Further, museums often try to expand their global reach by presenting work by non-Western artists, yet the framing of such work often draws from primitivist tropes or overdetermined discourses about the Herculean artists resisting the illiberal state. These examples direct us to race as both a national and transnational concern. Rather than repeating conversations about race and art in terms of good or bad representation, a binary mode of evaluation that tends to obscure or subsume structural questions and concerns, or rehearsing the case for more institutional inclusion, this book, Saturation, Race, Art, and the Circulation of Value, examines the terms and the conditions that frame how we understand race and aesthetics with a particular focus on global capital. Here, we offered key texts, roundtables, and conversations with artists and theorists to produce different questions and responses regarding race and representation. We use the framework of saturation to contend with approaches to and methods of racial representation, as well as to signal the messiness of dealing with race as a category that exceeds its saturation point. Through this lens, a different set of questions emerges. How is race constituted in relation to racial capitalism? How might representation be evaluated outside of a liberal paradigm that presumes the eventual eradication of race through the ruse of progress and a mix of just enough representation? As the editors of this collection, we begin our exploration of racial aesthetics and politics by asking, why do calls for representation often operate without Marxism? Addressing this question brings into view the ways moments of crisis often defaulted to calls for more representation without an account of structural change and the redistribution of resources, what can be called a condition of representation without Marxism. Thus, we rejoin the co-editors of the book that precedes arts in the Critical Anthologies in Art and Culture series when they argue in Trapdoor, Transcultural Production, and the Politics of Visibility, that representation should be understood as quote, less contemporary than historically insistent and less abstract than emphatically concrete, end quote. Early in his career, José Esteban Muñoz privileged the need for a Marxist notion of sensuous contemplation for queer critique, describing artist and activist Richard Fung's seminal essay, Looking for My Penis. Muñoz heralds Fung's work as privileging a Marxist, quote, sensuous contemplation over abstract thinking, whereby the former is a mode of saying and doing that makes one conscious of the actual material conditions of reality, the contingencies that structure the world and organize power. Fung's work represents what queer critique should be about, a sensuous contemplation of the material conditions of possibility that shape and form aspects of the individual, of his or her queerness, and our racialization, end quote. Munoz emphasizes the need to attend to social difference alongside structural power. Further, Catherine McKittrick, who draws from Sylvia Winter, grapples with the logics of racialization as a matter of geography. As McKittrick argues, quote, prevailing spatial organization gives a coherency and rationality to uneven geographic processes and arrangements. A city plan, for example, can and often does 
reiterate social class distinctions, racial and gender segregation, and inaccessibility to and from specific districts. The flows of money, spaces, infrastructures, and people are uneven. And that the built environment privileges and therefore mirrors white heterosexual capitalist and patriarchal geopolitical needs. End quote. Through such an attention to structure and subject, we turn to saturation as a framing mechanism with which to push discourses on race and aesthetics in different directions. Saturation is the organizing concept for this book as it provides space to think about the scientific, visual, corporeal, and sonic. Put differently, saturation not only describes the sensory, but also brings to the fore the methods, approaches, and structures that come to bear on how sensations are felt and embodied, elements of Munoz's sensuous contemplation. A brief history of the concept of saturation underscores our interest in histories of race as they bear upon matters of interpretation and perception. Color theory is typically narrated as beginning in the 18th century, following the publication of Isaac Newton's Optics, or a treatise of the reflections, refractions, inflections, and colors of light, published in 1704. While there is a record of earlier writings on these questions, Newton's theory of, quote, primitive colors, and his proposal for organizing color in relation to a, quote, wheel, incited much debate among his European contemporaries. In this instance, as is not uncommon, controversy over a particular text became the foundation for a field of knowledge. Many of his ideas remain influential to color theory, including his conception of saturation, which he understood in terms of the intensity of a color, expressed as the degree to which it differs from white. The centrality of whiteness to Newton's visual theory parallels an understanding of race as peripheral to whiteness in Western thought. We might consider them different expressions in intensity, but not in kind, of a neo-colonial logic that Gayatri Chakravarti Spivak describes in terms of a, quote, simple chromatism that characterizes how essentialist notions of race ultimately obscure international divisions of labor. It is through the scientific that one comes to test and verify the notion of visual saturation. In other words, the institutional and structural shape, the sensorial, scientific methods provide a measure by which something reaches its saturation point or becomes oversaturated. Such measures, in turn, offer a model for us to understand how not only institutions, but also racialized subjects reach and exceed saturation points. The body that must represent their minority position are often tasked to navigate institutional demands. However, this book examines at what point such bodies become oversaturated by navigating and existing within the institutions we invest in and yet critique. Oversaturation can manifest in a variety of ways, from further capitulation to exhaustion, indifference, or giving up. Relatedly, Saturation indexes the fact that many artists and theorists point us to the limits of representation and call for a destabilization of race. Yet their own participation in exhibition, education, and curation nonetheless furthers the operations of institutional life. We do not mean to place fault. Rather, we are interested in tracking how such complicities are enacted to navigate survival or subsistence.
alongside individual bodies, institutions themselves are changing. We acknowledge that some institutions have added minority bodies at multiple levels, boardrooms, artist exhibitions, and upper management. The numbers are generally still low, and we support the need to strengthen representation. Yet, even with an admittedly incremental increase in representation, we wager that how institutions operate and what they demand of their operators have not structurally changed in a substantive way. In other words, even if we saturate institutions with more representation, why do such institutions continue to function in predictable ways? What is it about liberal multiculturalism and its relationship to capitalism that enables institutions to avoid reaching a saturation point in their operations? This tension surrounding greater representation without structural change brings us to a notion of audio saturation that draws from sound editing practices. Audio saturation clues to a listener in ways that render a sense of warmth. By saturating sound, we accommodate and welcome a listener. In other words, audio saturation highlights how increased representation can at times lead to the entrenchment of norms. Even if we add, quote, more, this addition may not result in substantive change. In fact, it may allow things to operate with even more comfort and ease. For such reasons, we offer saturation as a capacious frame for thinking through the complexities of race, representation, and institutional life. We thus deploy saturation in both its sensorial and structural capacities to shift away from a liberal and capitalist understanding of racial diversity and representation. Insisting on more pleasure and other ways to cope. Throughout this collection of essays, portfolios, and conversations, artists and theorists direct us to view race as historically contingent and operating both in and beyond visibility and representability. In what follows, we engage different metaphors for race and racialization, such as the analytics of raciality, racial matter, or gendered racial capitalism. These terms are not offered up simply to circulate more specialized academic jargon, but are used to further a more precise vocabulary and grammar for making sense of how racialization affects all of modern representation. In this spirit, we offer this book as a way not merely to critique representation in its visual, sonic, cinematic, and other forms, but to direct us toward the need to attend to a different political project, one that challenges how representation is informed by a modern liberal tradition. This tradition and political vision presume that the more representative a polity is, the more attuned the state and institutions will be to respond to the public's needs. However, scholars like Roger Gay Ferguson and Sarah Ahmed have highlighted how the diversity-inclusion complex often diminishes the possibility for substantive change. In particular, Ferguson illustrates how institutions like the university operate under a logic similar to that of global capital. Quote, the American Academy and global capital adopted and renovated the regulations of representative democracy, how those institutions disciplined the critical formations and subjects that the race and gender movements inspired, and how capital and academy attempted to close the social universes that those movements worked to open up, end quote. 
Or put more explicitly, Ferguson highlights that, quote, new liberalism was therefore a means of using difference to foster capitalist distribution while curtailing social redistribution for underrepresented folks, end quote. This book, Saturation, builds upon such important work to highlight how liberal logics inform the cyclical debates about representation, whereby liberalism believes that the problem is a lack of representation rather than the organization of the state and institutions themselves. The state and other institutions existing under this liberal and modern political regime thus extol the virtues of representation as they continue to uphold the operations of capital reproduction and accumulation. Representation becomes the quick and easy answer to avoid an overhaul of the structures and institutions that maintain our current world order. This order extracts minoritized bodies for their representational difference to further capitalism without a reconsideration of the entire apparatus. The institutional offices that herald diversity and inclusion presume that more representation is the answer, allowing institutions to continue on as is. And when there are cadres of properly educated and disciplined minorities, they must be the right fit for an institution. Being the right fit means that these individuals enable the reproduction of institutional capitalist logics. These bodies, in other words, are simply institutional operators, but for their difference in representation. And when such educated minorities are seen as not good enough as compared to their white compatriots, they must then prove their allegiance or else internalize their difference through an inferiority complex. In other words, being the right fit means that they either hit their own saturation points and leave, or else understand the structural norms, navigate accordingly, and stay. Under this formulation, there is little room for institutions to change their norms and operations. In fact, these logics dominate multiple fields well beyond the art world, which is why we have focused more on the seemingly abstract notion of institutions and ask why representation becomes the oft-presumed answer even though representation furthers the larger operations of the art world, the Hollywood film industry, and the neoliberalizing university and private college system. All of these institutions presume capital accumulation to be the functioning norm, with those who become representative of difference needing to be the right fit precisely because they continue and even enhance institutional operations. We seem to stop to ask for more from our institutions when they simply prop up the right artist or actress of color. Is the answer more Jean-Michel Basquiat retrospectives to remedy the history of exclusion, or more well-attuned and acclimated students coming from the coded space known as the inner city to solve past discrimination and future job precarity? Asked differently, why is it that the Hollywood film industry, the art world, and universities presume more representation to be the answer while they all continue to funnel massive amounts of capital to the same 1%. As such, our hope for this book is to question liberalism, modern humanism, and capitalism, and to imagine other political visions beyond them. We take a pause from the dominance of representation to query and reformulate the assumptions and operations of the very institutions we seek to further access. With a focus on racial capital, this book highlights the need for a Marxist project of redistribution and institutional change through accounts of race. Although we are wary of providing functionalist answers to this problem, we hope that a focus on such 
a frame can help us think more broadly about institutional norms rather than repeating them through the constant reliance on representation. Saturation is not a policy prescription to remedy racial capital and ongoing debates on race in the art world. Instead, saturation provides a rubric to ask different questions and to push us to demand more from the ways institutions normatively function and how race has come to be imagined and understood. Such structural changes, however, are not illusory or merely theoretical. They can be tracked in the cultural labor of the artists, curators, and thinkers in this book. For example, many of the artists offer ways to grapple with the unrepresentability of race. Even artists contending with a presumed dominant locus of racialization, the explicit body, enact such an agenda in their practices. In Amber Jamila Musser's engagement with the use of explicit sex by artists Richard Fung, Zandra Ibarra, M. Lamar and Tourmaline, we find a moment to question not only art institutions, but also leftist institutions like activism. In their respective uses of the body, these artists often voice the inability of activism to contend with more expansive notions of race that teeter into terrain beyond proper modes of respectability, specifically explicit sexuality. Art becomes a way for these artists to imagine modes of being that cannot be encompassed by their activist practices. This becomes a moment to reimagine how we structure not just the art world, but also political work. Further, at the level of the art market, these artists each help us imagine race in its complexity well beyond representation, since they are often not considered, quote, proper or the, quote, right fit for most audiences. Thus, we might ask our institutions to redefine fit beyond a niche evening or on risque art to extend representations of race well beyond legible modes of propriety. In addition, curators and thinkers working in indigenous communities offer concrete mechanisms by which to tackle the oversaturation of minority life in institutions. For example, Dylan Robinson points to the monumental shift in the Canadian state's acknowledgement of indigenous genocide. This moment reflects a different model that is wrought with problems and possibility. Although Robinson voices critiques of the seemingly simplistic repetition of land acknowledgments happening in educational and art spaces across Canada, he also asks us to note how such performative practices continually expose the norms of institutional protocols. Along with Robinson, Mark Rifkin, in his essay on the connections between Kent Monkman's and Carol Walker's aesthetic practices, points to techniques that do not transparently show the realities of Native life. Instead, Robinson and Rifkin each direct us to artists who play with the use of opacity and untranslatability to critique how institutions function and to ask us to restructure their norms. Lastly, many in this book similarly provide avenues to enact a Marxist project that favors redistribution and structural shifts rather than presuming liberal representation and capital accumulation as norms. Both Lisa Lowe and Candace Chu point to the limits of academic disciplines 
to imagine race and the global. They ask us to reformulate the tasks and goals of scholarship and training. A dialogue between theorists Denise Ferreira da Silva and Fanuel Antui, moderated by C. Riley Snorton, offers poetics as a means by which to work through the institutional, the structural, and the aesthetic. The openness of the poetic pushes us to reimagine and restructure life outside of pragmatism and solutions, to be guided by a leftist ethics alongside a poetic imaginary. Thanks again to C. Raleigh Snorton and Hentai Yat for that reading. Saturation is available from all good bookstores. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on any of the usual platforms for more readings and interviews with authors, artists, and leading academics. <laughs>